Serb Alpert, the two on the brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. It is typically uh, the practice. It is typically the practice for Dave Cameron when he appears on Fangraphs Audio. Uh, he will typically analyze all baseball. In what follows, um, what follows, Dave Cameron mostly analyzes baseball. Mostly analyzes all baseball. I suppose you could say, uh, but what he does for the first five to ten minutes, I suppose, it is about is he analyzes Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, why would he do that? Allow me to inform you. Uh, uh, Dave Cameron was not around the site on Monday, was not around, for example, to record his spot on Fangraphs Audio because uh, he was he had spent a uh, luxury vacation, he spent a luxury vacation weekend with his wife in Charleston, South Carolina. So uh, I ask him about it, and we discuss it. You know, uh, then we move on to baseball matters. For example, why are Asian pitchers underrated? We talk about Manny Machado a little bit, but we start off by talking about Charleston, South Carolina. I, I'll submit somehow it's relevant. I don't know how, but if uh, we watch uh, baseball uh, for our pleasure, uh, we go to places like Charleston for our pleasure. It's all related to pleasure. So that's the story. So if you if you don't want to hear that, skip to the 10-minute mark. Maybe you're the 12-minute mark. I'm not a scientist. Anyway, it's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Typically, you analyze uh, analyze all baseball. I want you to analyze mostly baseball in this edition of the podcast, but I also want, if you're willing, I want you to analyze Charleston, South Carolina. Yes, I love Charleston, South Carolina. It was uh, uh, it's about a four and a half hour drive from my uh, residence in, in North Carolina, and uh, you know it's probably considered the top food city in the South, or at least one of them. New Orleans is probably in the next, and maybe Atlanta, but I think for my money, Charleston is probably the best. Uh, food city down here, and so uh, my wife and I took a trip for a few days to go enjoy what Charleston has to offer, and uh, enjoyed it very much. You know, Charleston—that's a—it's a very old place, is that right? Yes, correct. So, that is uh, uh, one of the oldest cities in the South, where the Battle of Fort Sumter took place. Uh, lots of Civil War history. Um, it's where the slave market was for ships coming over from Africa. So there's uh, definitely some negative history as well, but. Uh, it's certainly a, a historically important city in, in American history. I would have to imagine, um, and I, I'll ask you about food in a second, but um, to the degree you're interested in food, I would say that I am interested in not not architecture per se, but um, uh, certain spaces that are created, especially uh, in older places uh, where you have, um, you, you might uh, come across, I guess, interesting spaces, uh, interesting for walking, this sort of thing. Yeah, so I think, like, one of the things that, you know, I'd been to Charleston before, but never for multiple days like this. I've generally stayed outside of town. Um, I mean, I stayed slightly outside of town this time, too, because staying in downtown Charleston is extremely expensive. Uh, but, it, it, you know, walking around the city and getting to spend a decent amount of time there the last few days, I found it interesting how the uh, kind of the sections uh, of the city work is, like, basically by the by the harbor or down by the water, there's a, you know, a half mile or so collection of blocks that are uh, very high-end residences. Some of the largest uh, houses you would see in a um, kind of a downtown atmosphere, probably in, in any country, in a city in the country. I mean, these are, you know, 
three-story, I mean, they have to be like 5,000-square-foot homes with massive, everyone, every house down there essentially has like a large wraparound uh, porch or veranda. These are plantation-style homes, but in the middle of an urban setting. Uh, and they just go on and on and on, and, you know, each one's probably, you know, $5 million and up because of their location and the view and the size and um, kind of the history that goes along with those homes. So having that section of extremely high-end, large residences in an urban setting, uh, to me, was, was pretty interesting. And then and what is the uh, – is it just with regard to the, the dining, is it just that there is a, a great diversity, or is there any particular one sort of cuisine that they do well? Yeah, so uh, I think the overriding cuisine of the area is called low country. Um, so, you know, the, there's, I guess, high country cuisine, which would be kind of be like the Appalachian Mountains. Low country is kind of considered the the water down near uh, the area down near the, the ocean and uh, kind of the flat parts of the Carolinas and the south. Uh, low country cuisine is um, very heavy into um, certain types of vegetables that are native to um, that, that area and then also uh, shellfish, so shrimp. Uh, crab, um, you know, those kinds of uh, seafoods are uh, in abundance. Um, and then, you know, the, the famous southern things, there's tons of grits, uh, lots of cornmeal, uh, biscuits, those kinds of dishes kind of work their way in. So you have, you know, lots of greens, collards, the, that kind of like southern cooking uh, mixed in with corn, uh, starches, um, and then lots and lots of shellfish. No, of course, as a as a, a person born in the north, uh, I, I have I'm naturally prejudiced against the south, uh, um, but I, I I also recognize that that's um, that that's probably um, not an entirely responsible way to behave. Uh, are, are any of the conceptions that you could imagine I would have about the south? I, I say, to what degree do they apply to a place like Charleston? Yeah, I mean, I think like the. Um the, the cliches about the South are somewhat true. I mean, I've lived in, you know, North Carolina is a little less southern than South Carolina, but it's still pretty southern. I've lived here since, you know, 1999, essentially. Uh, so, you know, I think that I would say the stereotypes of, of what people eat and kind of, uh, you know, the southern sensibilities are, are based in some, some realities. But I think, by and large, the South is underrated. I mean, the weather is terrible. I hate the summers. The humidity is awful. But uh, the cuisine is actually pretty good if you learn how to eat, uh, you know, not everything fried. If you can, you know, pick the best parts of the cuisine. Uh, the people are actually really nice. I mean, there's certainly some, uh, and I think in Charleston you can feel this, there's probably still some underlying racial tensions and a lot of segregation. There's you know, this is probably true in, in most cities, but especially in Charleston, you could feel you were in the white neighborhood or the black neighborhood. There was a, right. a, a distinct line in which you left the uh, part of Charleston where there was money and you drove a block and all of a sudden there were, you know, gospel missions and crisis control centers and uh, the, the dividing line between have and have-nots was um, very stark as it is in, you know, a lot of the South where uh, old plantation-style family heritage passed down millions of dollars through hundreds of generations. So that would be a lot of people. Many generations um, and, you know, other classes still are trying to fight their way up and, and just, you know, provide for their families. So, um, but I think overall the, the South is uh, maybe a little underestimated in terms of its quality of culture, quality of people, and quality of food. Okay. Well, that's noted. That's uh, uh, well done with regard to your analysis and report on Charleston, South Carolina. I feel like I know a little bit more. 
Oh, wait, wait. I, I will. I will say for anyone who's going to Charleston, we, my wife and I ended up eating at five or six different places of some note. Uh, by far, my highest recommendation has to go to a place called Fig. It's probably the hardest reservation to get in Charleston. So if you're going, you know, plan on trying to get your reservation as far ahead as you can. Um, but Fig is awesome. And now, last last thing, uh, if you had if you had one trip to take to the south. And you live, for example, in Madison, Wisconsin, or whatever. Would you go to Would you go to Charleston, or would you go to Asheville? It's tough. They, okay. they are. Uh, I like them both. They are very different. So mm-hmm. Asheville is um, going to be almost not southern at all. Uh, Asheville is the southern city that is um, the most like the north. It is um, sort of a, an artsy community in which a lot of people from other parts of the world have moved there in order to establish residence and uh, paint or, you know, sell marijuana or do <laughs> artist kinds of things. It is very uh, not Southern at all in its culture. Um, very, it's a liberal city, by probably the most liberal city in the South, um, or at least one of them. Um, so it would be much more comparable to Austin or Portland. If you went to Asheville, you would say, I recognize this city. Uh, you know, it kind of looks like Brooklyn. I mean, it's, it's that kind of city. Charleston is not that at all. Charleston is very white, very upscale, very rich, um, full of history, uh, not an artist community in that sense. There's not a lot of struggling artists. Uh, you know, I think if you walk through the galleries in downtown Charleston, you'll see that, you know, that you can't afford any of the stuff they're selling. Uh, I think Amy and I went into one furniture store the other day and, uh, there was a lamp that was $2,000 for the lamp. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what would justify anyone to pay $2,000 for a lamp. You won't find that in Nashville. Uh, and, and so I think if you want to go to the south version of Portland or Austin, Asheville's awesome. The food there is also great. Uh, the climate is way better. I really like Asheville. It's also only two hours from my house, so I go there more often. Um, but if you're looking for kind of a trip to the south to kind of see what the south is, Charleston is not a bad representation. Right. So if you were a mainstream travel writer, uh, do you think that you'd be inclined to use the word funky to describe Asheville? I don't think I try to use the word funky, uh, <laughs> unless I'm just describing someone's delivery, right? How about, you know, about quirky? About, Would you say quirky? Quirky? I, I don't know. I just think, like, um, probably the easiest way to describe Asheville is that 95% of the people there are high all the time. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, listen, I, um, now that we've alienated... Uh, hopefully the entire, well, not hopefully, but uh, surely the entire listenership. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about baseball. Let's move uh, to a piece that you wrote for today. Upon returning uh, from from Charleston, your first your first uh, piece since coming back, um, uh, concerning uh, pitchers from from Asian countries and how uh, actually, if you look at basically all of them, uh, perhaps with the exception of at this point Hisanora Takahashi. Uh, this season, just because he hasn't pitched that much, um, they're kind of all above average at this point. And I, I guess, I don't know, you, you say maybe it's time we stop underrating them. I don't know if you mean, um, uh, maybe you're saying maybe it's time Dave Cameron stops underrating them. But at any at any rate, uh, they're good is the, is the point you'd like to make. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this on the podcast, not necessarily with regards to Asian pitchers, but, um, you know, like in that article I wrote a couple years ago about what stuff is, and how change-ups are generally not described as, uh, or change-up pitchers are not generally described as having plus stuff. I think what we're seeing in Major League Baseball right now is that there's a group of pitchers, uh, and so, you know, certainly some of them are from Japan or Korea or Taiwan, who are 
succeeding far above expectations because their best pitch is either a changeup or split finger. And, you know, realistically, we can probably get rid of the differences between those two. They're basically the same pitch. They do the same things. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily throwing at the same velocity, but they have the same properties. They're basically the same type of pitch. Um, pitchers with that kind of specialty seem to be regularly underrated, uh, despite the fact that the changeup slash splitter works really well against off-hand hitters. It allows pitchers to um, overcome platoon issues, which helps them stay in the rotation. You get strikeouts, it gets ground balls. It's a you know a really dynamite pitch, uh, and it seems like for whatever reason uh, the non-U Darvish Shinichi Tozawa version of uh, pitchers from Asian countries in Major League Baseball right now all rely very heavily on. Uh, change-ups or splitters. Um, I think mean, we've seen Roki Kuroda and Hisashi Uakuma, Koji Uehara. Uh, this is basically what they all are, strike throwers who have a great out-pitch change-up or splitter. Um, and it seems like, you know, Major League scouts have potentially undervalued this type of uh, player. Or, you know, maybe it's not just the scouts, but it's the, the guys paying for the players, um, executives, whatever it is. You know, for some reason, uh, these guys have been generally ignored. I mean, not completely ignored, but under underrated, underpaid, um, under-pursued by major league teams. And I think, you know, maybe we could say that there's an argument that the success of this group means that there's probably more pitchers in those countries that um, if if major league baseball was more aggressive and kind of put less of a discount on performance in, in those countries, might be able to find more quality pitchers. So one thing that I wanted to, to ask about, and I guess th- this seems as good a time as any, is... In terms of, uh, you know, we try always, uh, maybe in the sabermetric community, certainly uh, th- there are a couple of good outlets for it, um, where people have attempted to do it, to translate stats from any level to the major league level, right? We saw this, uh, for example, when Ioannis Cespedes uh, came to the United States. We said, well, he's had uh, he's had this performance in the Cuban leagues. What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of major league baseball? We do this with minor leaguers all the time, and of course we see some we see some difficulty. If, you know, for example, if you had translated Yusmero Petit's uh, numbers, uh, you know that doing doing that is different than uh, than translating the numbers of a of a pitcher, uh, you know, with uh, with big stuff that plays up, right? What are the what do we what do we know about translating numbers from Japan? Where are we on that front? And I guess what does it tell us about the quality of player that that might be there? Or not, sorry, not just Japan, but also but also the the Korean Baseball League um, and yeah. any other the other uh, Asian leagues. Yeah, I mean, I think you know people have been doing Japanese translations for a long time, and you know probably more recently Korea and Taiwan and uh, all the other Pacific Rim countries um, in order to you know kind of put them on the same scale as American minor leagues and figure out what kind of discount we need to apply when looking at player statistics from across the ocean. Um, and I think what these translations have generally shown is that uh, these players are probably capable of performing well in Major League Baseball. I think like the, the running uh, idea for some time has been that you know the Japanese leagues uh, are somewhere between AAA and Major League Baseball, um, but probably at a higher level than the Pacific Coast League or the International League. Um, maybe not in terms of high-end talent, but across the board, there's probably a greater depth of talent and not as many inferior players as those leagues have. So a player who performs well in those leagues uh, should be expected to perform more closely to that performance than if he was coming from the American AAA League. Uh, and I think, you know, history shows this out. I mean, you know, despite the skepticism, even on position players, I think we're seeing, you know, Ichiro Suzuki did far better in America than he was expected to. Uh, you know, Norichi Gaioki has been a 
complete steal for the Brewers. They got him for basically nothing. He's a league average outfielder, maybe even a little bit better than that. Uh, you know, there's a long list of position players who come over with skepticism where people said, oh, he's too small, and, you know, Japanese players don't hit for any power, and, you know, their stats are inflated because of small ballparks and lots of astroturf and, you know, the, the kind of the style of baseball they play. It's not going to work here. But, you know, there's a pretty long history of Japanese players doing, I think, better than they were projected to do in, in Major League Baseball. Um, the pitchers, you know, there was a little less skepticism about, um, you know, obviously today when Nomo came over and there, there's been pitchers coming over for longer. But I think, you know, there's a kind of a stretch in the, you know, five or six years ago where a lot of these guys didn't do so well, uh, kind of headlined by Daisuke. Um, but Kenshin Kawakami of Atlanta, uh, Hideki Rabu, I mean, there's, you know, a decent number of high-profile guys who didn't turn out. Um, but I think, you know, the current crop of pitchers shows that, you know, pitchers can be good, too. And, you know, there's certainly value in, in pursuing uh, players from Asian countries and maybe um, putting more stock into their translated numbers and less into the fact that, you know, there aren't that many guys over the throwing 95. Now, obviously, Japan has uh, acquitted itself nicely uh, in international play, winning the first yeah. two World Baseball Classics. And yet that seems to not necessarily have impacted um, the perception of, of Japanese players that much in the United States. Because it, it seems as the, you know, the, the sort of virtues you hear celebrated, whether they exist or not, in, in, the, in the Japanese national team is that they play together as a team, uh, they, you know, they, they pitch well, they field well, they run well, you know, they bunt well. These are the, these are the, the sort of things that are celebrated. But as we know, those skills that I just mentioned, I mean, obviously pitching is important, defense is important, but the thing, the same things win baseball games everywhere, and that's scoring more runs than your opponents. Right. The, the, the Japanese players who are here now, and, and additionally the Korean and Taiwanese players, they do the things that win baseball games, uh, not just necessarily the virtues that are espoused by, uh, you know, uh, color commentators. But I'm curious as to what, I don't know what your sense is of the, the gap between, or what, why the WBC victories have not necessarily convinced people that Japanese players uh, play on the same level as any of the other best players in the world. Well, I think part of it is probably that, you know, a, a good number of the best players in the world don't participate in the WBC. I mean, you know, Justin Verlander didn't pitch for America. There's a, you know, a good number of missing stars. And I think any time the Americans don't do very well uh, in international competition, the excuse is always, well, we didn't send our best players, and that's why whatever the dream team was formed to play in the Olympics in basketball after uh, we got tired of losing to, uh, you know, other countries, we decided to send all our NBA players and crush everybody and uh, show them the best basketball in the world was to play America. Um, so I think that there's some of that kind of sentiment still holding over, where it's like, well, if we had actually sent all of the best American players, we would have crushed everyone. But, I think, you know, Felix Hernandez didn't pitch for Venezuela. Like, it wasn't just the Americans holding out uh, you know, they're elite players. Um, so I do think that, you know, some of the discounting of the WBC and international play is probably, um, you know, kind of a post hoc rationalization of why the U.S. didn't win coming from an aspect of, or coming from a perception that clearly the U.S. is the dominant, uh, country in terms of baseball talent. It probably is. I think if you played a longer series or a longer, uh, tournament that wasn't, you know, just a couple of weeks during spring training, uh, my guess is the U.S. would win more often than most other countries. They wouldn't win every time. And certainly I think these other countries uh, probably can at least compete at a, at a pretty high level, especially Japan, Venezuela, Dominican Republic. 
there are baseball hotbeds all around the world. I think, you know, it's probably um, a little bit uh, out of touch to think that America is the sole source of, of quality major league talent now. So if if it becomes more clear that um, Asian Asian players are uh, on par uh, with the best American players, the best Asian players are on par with the best American players, or best, you know, Venezuelan, Dominican, etc., do you sense that that if that becomes a fact of sorts within baseball front offices and within Major League Baseball, do you sense that that might um, compel owners and executives to put more pressure on um, Japanese baseball, et cetera, to make their players available um, in, in, a, in a different fashion than they have been so far? Because as of now, it's hard – uh, with with their um, contractual agreements, it's hard to get a, a talented Japanese player before he's 30 years old. Right. I think that there's um, it's tricky, right? So I don't think Major League Baseball is not interested in killing uh, the MTB. They don't want to eliminate Japanese professional baseball or strip it of all its talent uh, to the point where it you know represents a lower level quality of play that diminishes baseball in that country and. and uh, I think right now Major League Baseball is trying very hard to increase the popularity of baseball around the world. So if you go rating all the best players from from those countries, at, you know, 18 to 22 years old, uh, you're probably not going to increase interest in in the sport in, in its homeland uh, as much as if you give them a chance to let them become stars there and, and then bring them over when they're established. So I think that the current system has worked to some degree, and I think there probably is some um, – effects that we're seeing here is that the players who are coming over from Japan specifically uh, are older than, you know, the players who are coming over uh, are American prospects. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why they're, they're succeeding at a higher level is they've got professional experience. They've pitched in, uh, you know, a number of uh, situations that have proven their abilities. Um, we're essentially selecting out the players who aren't good enough to make it over here by letting them play longer in Japan. So we're um, just kind of skimming off the top and, and only getting the best uh, players that would be able to make the transfer over to the Major League Baseball. I think if we said, okay, let's get more aggressive, start pulling players at a younger age, we'd have uh, a lower success rate um, and potentially do harm to NPB that would not be good for the game in the long run. Now, uh, uh, we've, we've, we've talked about the Japanese League. we made some comments uh, about... Uh, Korean Baseball League, Taiwanese Baseball League. I think what people really want to know is what are the relative strengths of the Italian Baseball League? Uh, yeah, actually, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I know of a few Italian players in the minor leagues in, uh, right now, and I can probably uh, transfer their skills to the Italian League of a whole and say that because Alex Liddy has serious contact problems, and the whole league must have serious contact problems, but that seems foolish. Yeah. Well, there's the Italian League, there's the uh, the, uh, the the Dutch league honk, playing honkball. Yes, honkball. This is the uh, um, this is the next territory, yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see. I mean, I think most the consensus is that the next territory is China because there's you know 40 billion people there. So <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. You actually don't even have to exaggerate. You can say right. the you can say the actual population of China, and that's also <laughs> a lot. There's literally like two billion people. That's so many. Right. A, th- a third of the world basically yeah. resides in China. 
Um, so the law of large numbers says that some of them must be good at baseball or would be good at baseball if we taught them how to play baseball uh, on a more regular basis and made it more of their culture. So I think that the, the expectation is that eventually um, Chinese players are going to become a, a much larger portion of Major League Baseball than they are now. Um, and, you know, this might be a sport that has some growth potential there, um, given what we've seen in, the, in other Asian countries. Uh, but I do think, you know, Europe's interesting as well. I mean, there's certainly um, baseball leagues over there, as you mentioned, and I think there's, uh, you know, athletic talents that generally probably move towards soccer or basketball, but if, if baseball became more popular, uh, perhaps you could move some of those talents from soccer or basketball uh, over to baseball and, and get some interesting players out of uh, the European leagues as well. Well, yeah, there's always a sort of thought experiment that occurs, right? Because, uh, you know, so for example, in soccer, right, the United States obviously has a lot of um, talented athletes. Um, those talented athletes, depending on their, you know, their their skills, they gravitate towards this or that sport. You know, but like I always imagine, and so so therefore, like while our soccer team actually is not bad now, um, it's not elite, despite the fact that if ev- so if everyone. If, if you know soccer was given uh, first pick of the top athletes, what, what what you know what would the American national team look like then? It would probably be very good. I always would imagine if Allen Iverson, for example, had decided to play soccer because this is you well know, that that would be a terrible thing because isn't the whole point of soccer passing? <laughs> well, it depends. On I, I can't think of an athlete less likely to do well in soccer than Allen Iverson. It, no, it depends on your position. I mean, if you're a striker, then uh, then your then your job is to score, and he would probably relish that opportunity. <laughs> I, don't, I think he would get frustrated by the fact that he only got to shoot like once or twice a game. What would you? What do you think? Because uh, there there are. I mean, there's a sort of. It's actually interesting to discuss too, like the sort of body types that are appropriate for each sport. Um, so like, you know, like in baseball, even you look at Mike Trout and you say, well, Mike Trout, um, Mike Trout could be a safety probably in the NFL, uh, given his physique or maybe even a, you know, like a very physical cornerback or something like that. Or a running back even. He could be. Yeah, right. And maybe he might be too tall for that, but who's to say, right? That's the point. Uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, left tackles in football, uh, maybe they could have played, what like a power forward in the NBA, eh, but typically, right. or or like a center, like typically that's a football player, and no other sport is really going to make a lot of sense. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. CC Sabathia can probably be a left tackle. Uh, yeah, he probably could be. He actually is. What is he? He's like six seven, right? Six eight. Six seven two eighty. Yeah. That's a big person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so, but you do see like uh, it would be interesting just to look at a Venn diagram in terms of body types, just to see the overlaps. But I'm curious, like there must be, there must be body types in Europe, for example, um, that would make sense for baseball. Uh, but they're playing some other sport. I mean, maybe some of them are playing soccer. But what what else do pe- people play? Basketball there. There's handball. There's a lot. Maybe there's. Oh, yeah. Can we should we raid handball? Is that the idea? Well, I think you know if you look at uh, you know I think European basketball players are are generally uh, quite athletic. Um, it would be interesting. I mean, you know, maybe it's not a good idea for them, but it would be interesting to see if there would be you know six foot ten to seven footers with good athleticism would want to try pitching. I mean, I think what we've seen is that uh, tall pitchers uh, who <laughs> have good command and good off-speed stuff are at a significant advantage because of their release point. Um, so, you know, if you took, you know, members of the um, European uh, basketball team and spent years teaching them how to pitch, 
I, w- I wouldn't be shocked if we found another Randy Johnson. Right, and and the point is, it doesn't even necessarily have to be Randy Johnson, right? Because, because you know, we've seen this with Chris Young, uh, for example. Chris Young only throws well, like on the uh, uh, in terms of the the pitch. The what am I saying? The radar? What am I saying? Radar? What do I mean? Yeah. The radar. Uh, velocity. Velocity. His, His velocity. velocity. <laughs> he he pitches what like eighty seven, eighty eight, but yeah. because he's a giant person. Uh, his arm is closer during during release, and uh, so you, you know he might have an apparent uh, fastball velocity of uh, 92 or something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. figures. There's no question that like leverage and release point uh, can can make up for a lack of velocity. So if you have a tall guy who throws 95, uh, you know that might look like a guy throwing 100. And if you have a tall guy throwing 100, that might look like 105. So um, you know I do think that they, you know, the ability of European basketball teams to produce a large number of athletic tall players uh, is interesting compared to the U.S. where it seems like most of the the tall uh, American players end up being not super athletic and, and maybe more along the lines of, uh, you know, clumsy centers who just try and block everything. Right. Although Mark Hellick, Mark Hellickson, Mark, Mark Hendrickson, he did play, Hendrickson. He, he played yeah. actually professional, he played professional basketball. I believe so. Yeah, I think he was only like six eight. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. as tall. Am I wrong? I don't know. I could uh, I could yeah. Google it, but that I don't see how that. He was he was tall. Let's say that he was tall. Yeah. Yeah, let's say that. Uh, listen, one thing before you go, um, I want to get to a brief conversation of Manny Machado. You wrote a piece on him last week. Uh, I think something like a superstar in the making. Yes, that's what it is. In fact, superstar in the making. Um, you, this is a this is a go to Dave Cameron move. You did it a little bit. Uh, you did a little bit in, in this uh, post on Asian pitchers. I think you, you added up all their numbers and looked at Justin Verlander over the course last year. A lot of uh, comparative statistical work. In this case, you took um, what Manny Machado's first uh, 330 or so plate appearances and compared them to Miguel Cabrera, another uh, another talented 20-year-old. Uh, you compared them to his first 300, uh, 350 plate appearances. And uh, what is revealed is that these players are not very different. At least at, at the plate, yes. At the plate. Well, it's true, right. In a field, of course, Machado. Now, um, um, is, is the point you're trying to make, this is a slightly naive um, softball-type question, is the point you're trying to make that Manny Machado will definitely be as good as Miguel Cabrera? Yeah, absolutely. That's the point <laughs> I'm trying to make. Put it at okay. your houses, yes. No, that has been, no, uh, that no has been, variance with young players. Okay, that has been Fangraph's audio. <laughs> uh, uh, no, but, uh, so, but, but the point being that even Manny Machado, we don't necessarily think of as a star. The point is, if you're good at age 20, the chances that you'll be better at age 27 are pretty. They're above 50 percent, I assume. Yeah. What, you, what are the What yeah. are the chances? Do you think if you're good at if you're good at age 20, or if you're anything at age 20, what are the chances you'll be better at age 27? I think it depends on how you're good. I mean, I think what we saw with uh, Christian Guzman maybe was pretty good at age 21 or something. Uh, I think he was terrible at age 20. But, I mean, he was good early because he was a terrific defender with contact skills but not a lot of power. I think that kind of skill set peaks very early. Um, So I think, you know, depending on what type of player you are, uh, you know, it it matters uh, less how old you are um, versus other sets of skills. I think Machado's skill set is one where he's probably going to peak a little bit earlier because his defense is so good right now, uh, not just based on the metrics which are off the charts, um, but, you know, uh, from a scouting perspective, uh, the fact that he was a shortstop and everyone thought he could stay at shortstop, there's little question that Manny Machado is an elite defensive third baseman right now. 
it's probably only going to get worse defensively at third. Um, you know, this is a defense peaks very early. So I don't think that we should expect the Machado, because he's a, you know, potentially a three or four win player right now, is immediately going to turn into an eight win player. Uh, you know, his offense will have to grow at a pace faster than his defense declines. But I think you can look at, you know, guys like Evan Mongoria and see how this skill set can very easily become a superstar. Uh, I would say the Cabrera comparison was essentially to point out that Machado's offense, uh, the fact that he, you know, is the best hitter in baseball like, you know, Mike Trout was last year, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he's not going to eventually become a very good hitter. Uh, and when you added Machado's defense, there's certainly superstar potential. But I do think we were a little bit spoiled with Trout and Harper last year and Giancarlo Stanton and Jason Hayward and Justin Upton in recent years where it seems like we've just had a, a run of fantastic young hitters at 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, and kind of remember, like, through baseball history, that isn't the norm. It's not like we generally have one of these guys every year. The fact that Machado has come up and been an average hitter through age 20 speaks really well for his future, especially considering what else he could do on the field. So is, is part of what you're trying to do with the Machado, the Machado uh, Cabrera comparison just to sort of recalibrate, like, especially, like you, you say, especially after Trout and Harper, just to yeah. just to make sure we calibrate our expectations of um, of what young players are and what they can do, but also to remind us that being decent at twenty is a is a is a very good quality to have. Yeah, I think that it, that was both of those things were the point is to both put us back on you know kind of a level playing field after Trout and Harper kind of reset expectations to an obscure level or an obscene level. Obscure is not the right word. Uh, Absurd level, whatever the, the yeah, right word fine. there is. You're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think you know to try and put it back on a normal playing field and say, you know, what Machado's doing right now is historically terrific uh, compared to you know all the non-Harper guys. Um, but also just to say, you know, if someone who can hold their own at age 20, uh, here's what their aging curve probably looks like. It's fantastic. This is a reason to be excited to think that Machado is going to be an excellent hitter very soon. Um, with regard to Christian Guzman, you, you brought that up uh, as, as sort of something to think about. And actually, I, I did go to his player page in the meantime. He was worth the negative three wins his rookie season. Yeah, uh, terrible. One of the worst seasons of baseball history. Right. But uh, that, that being said, right, you have to be given the opportunity to play right. to, to be able to produce that bad of a season, uh, right. which which he was. And he was uh, he was replacement level the next season and then worth – uh, four wins this season after that. So that's not a bad uh, – which maybe should be illustrative of the fact that young players get better. Question, yeah. though, how do we know a player like Guzman is not going to develop power when we know that the power aging curve, I think, doesn't peak till what, 27, 30, somewhere around there? Yeah, I think at this point uh, you, that's when size has to be a factor. So if you look at a guy like Christian Guzman, you know, 5'10 and 160 pounds, there's just no real area for him to get stronger. I mean, you can look at, you know, uh, a guy who's six foot four and 180 pounds and easily see him adding 20 pounds without becoming a, you know, roly poly, uh, Warren Newsom style player and say, you know, there's room for this guy to get stronger. But Manny Machado, you can easily look at him and say, there's room for him to get stronger, for natural aging and growth to just make his body, uh, you know, get more power out of what he has. You look at a guy like Elvis Andrus who might be, you know, 22, 23 years old, you're not going to project the same power growth for him simply because of his size. Right. And, yeah, I guess it's – yeah. It, it, can we look at swing mechanics too or something like that? That seems like it would make sense as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can see ground ball rate is a pretty large factor in, in power. I mean, you know, like Ben Revere hits the ball on the ground like 80% of the time. There's no growth for power when you're constantly driving the ball into the ground. Ben Revere drives the ball into the ground because he's tiny and he has no power. So this is a choice that he's made. It's essentially a proxy, I think. It's not that the ground ball percentage causes the lack of power. Uh, it's that guys without power choose to hit the ball on the ground. So if we look at the kind of swing trajectory and, and how often a guy hits the ball in the air versus how often he hits the ball on the ground, it probably gives us a decent idea of what he thinks his power potential is. Okay. Hey, we, uh, I think you did it. Cool. You, uh, you fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I feel fulfilled. Yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, well, I want to thank you for, uh, for joining us on this Tuesday. It's a Tuesday edition of, uh, Dave Cameron's appearance in the podcast, but I think still, still decent, still decent. Yes, I don't think it gets worse just because we're not getting out on Monday, does it? No, that's probably true. That is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.